Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another weekend of our stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. Today, we are going to wrap up the story of Gideon. Uh, unfortunately, it's a story that ends on a really bad note. Uh, you know, Gideon's the classic example of someone who starts his race really well, uh, maybe does everything right for, you know, the first couple miles of the race. Uh, and then as he's coming down home stretch, uh, he really falls off his stride and <laughs> falls off the course and <laughs> disappears into the bushes, to use a cross-country <laughs> example. And the people are left, whoever was waiting for him there at the finish line is left wondering, man, where the heck did that guy get off to? But uh, it's just a good reminder to us, uh, especially those of us who maybe feel that we're running quite well in the race. It's a good reminder to us that it's not always how you start. It's not always how you run in the middle of the race. Uh, it, it's really how you finish that counts. And um, Gideon is uh, nothing short of a tragedy. I mean, this is a Romeo and Juliet type tragedy where uh, when when it's all said and done, you're just left thinking, man, they should have done a few things differently in there, and they might have not ended up just having to drink poison together and dine. Anyhow, uh, last week we were in, in chapter 8 of the book of Judges. Uh, we were reading about how Gideon had achieved a victory over the Midianites and their allies, um, and then how he achieved vengeance over the naysayers and the haters who were members of Israel. Uh, and then in verse 22, as we pick the story up today, we read that the Israelites say to Gideon, we want you to rule over us, you, your son, and then your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Gideon. It's like they come to him and they're like, Gideon, look, all you do is win, and we want to follow a winner, so you should be in charge because all you do is win, and that's the kind of person that should be in charge. And then what's more, your son should be in charge, and then his son after him. Really what they're talking about is making Gideon a king, and why being someone's son ever qualifies someone for leadership is anyone's best guess, but that's kind of how kings do things. Keeping it in the family. Anyhow, in verse 23, Gideon says to them, hey, I am not going to rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You know, this is what God is after, and Gideon knows this. I mean, Gideon's the guy who's been having conversations with God all throughout this story, and, and so we're really off to a good start here in this leg of the story, if only it were that way at the finish line. But Gideon has just resisted the temptation to be a king, uh, which is a pretty noble thing to have people come to you and say, you should be the leader. And for him to say, no, God needs to be your leader is, is uh, this is a, a praiseworthy action of Gideon's. And yet very quickly, he's going to need to resist another temptation. And that is the temptation to, well, if I'm not going to be king, the thought enters his mind that, well, maybe I could turn a profit on the anointing that the Lord has given me. Uh, if I'm not going to be a king, maybe I can at least become uh, financially profitable in this whole venture that God has called me to do. And so in verse 24, he says, uh, he says, I don't want, I can't be king, let the Lord rule over you. But he says, I do have one request, that each of you would give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And then if we're confused about that, the author of Judges adds in a note. He says, it was custom for the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. And now we learn that the Ishmaelites were maybe a part of this band that the Midianites had gathered together who were oppressing Israel at the time. So, so what is Gideon saying? He's saying, I won't be king, 
But if you all want to thank me for my great leadership, I suppose it would be appropriate for you all to give me an earring from your share of the plunder. You know, if you all want to express to me gratitude for the great job I've done, uh, maybe a, a token of your appreciation could be given to me in a monetary form. Specifically, let's take each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And so they answer him. They say, we'll be glad to do that. They spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. And the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's neck. So wait, what? How many rings? 1,700 shekels. Of course, you, like me, probably need to look that up. I'll save you some time. That's 43 pounds of golden earrings. Uh, by today's value on gold, according to the internet, that's $1.1 million worth of earrings. Of course, then there were also these pendants and purple garments, and then all the gold chains from the camel's necks. Uh, remember, these were camels that were like the sands of the seashore, you know, too many to count. And so either way, Gideon is walking out of this uh, award ceremony with a lot of bling. Gideon, who had started as the least of the least at this point when God first called him, is probably now the wealthiest man uh, maybe in Israel's history up to this point. And on the one hand, you know, he's worked hard. Uh, we tend to believe that people who work hard deserve wealth. And so uh, <laughs> maybe some of us would feel he's justified in making this request. You know, well, if he's not going to take kingship, at least he should be set up for the rest of his days he might be seen by some as entitled to become wealthy on this venture. He defeated the Midianites, after all. Did he defeat the Midianites? You know, who, who was it who defeated the Midianites? Maybe a better question would be, who sent the Midianites' army into confusion and had them defeat themselves as they all turned tail and ran from Gideon? I mean, yes, Gideon obeyed, and yes, Gideon pursued, but the reality is, if anyone deserves an extra share of gratitude for what has happened, it's God, not Gideon. For Gideon's done nothing but simply obey God, and God is the one who's acted and brought about the victory. But, you know, maybe Gideon will put his wealth to good use. Maybe he's going to use it to alleviate the suffering of his fellow man as he practices generosity and hospitality according to the law of Moses. Or, or, or maybe he'll become an example of what a righteous man who is blessed by God can accomplish with their wealth in terms of making the world around them a better place. And many righteous, wealthy people do that kind of thing all the time. Maybe Gideon will be that example for us in Scripture. And maybe not. As we continue to read the story, uh, in verse 27, read that Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. What is an ephod? Well, an ephod was described in the Torah as this garment that the priest was supposed to wear when he did the holy ceremony. So, I mean, it was kind of like, for lack of a better term, it was like a holy poncho. The priest would put on and wear over his priestly garments, it had this pocket in it where the Urim and the Thummim were located. He would use that to cast lots and determine the will of the God. And we won't get into all of that because when you delve too deep into all that stuff, uh, a lot of ancient Israelite religious practices just seem like crazy pagan things. But anyhow, Gideon has made some variation of this garment. You know why? I don't. You know maybe it was meant to be hung on a mannequin and 
and commemorate God's victory. Maybe it was meant for him, like to kind of symbolize this meeting place of he and God in his town. Uh, maybe it was meant to be a priestly outfit for himself. You know, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't say exactly why he did it or why he made this gold ephod. But it is clear about what happened. The next line says that all of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And then it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So we have this gold ephod that Gideon has made to commemorate God's deliverance, a high point in victory. You know, this time when Israel could just see God moving in their midst. And then the people of God begin to worship this thing. And God, who was the victor, is quickly forgotten in favor of promoting Gideon and in favor of worshiping Gideon's golden ephod. And in this part of the story, I see a retelling of the story of humanity. I see our story, right? The tendency that we might have to worship people or or to put our hope in leaders, to forget about God's provision and quickly want to credit it to things we can see, people that we can touch, people that we can tag our own reputation onto and name drop from time to time. Our tendency to worship the symbols of past victories or to long for the good old days or to trust that somehow yesterday's plunder is going to sustain us into the future. And these kinds of sentiments always lead to God's provision and his blessings and the victory he gives us. It leads to these things becoming a snare for us in the same way that this gold ephod is described as a snare to Gideon's family. You know, we see yesterday's plunder as the symbolic presence of God in our midst today. It can lead to nothing but a tragic end. And we know that tragic ends are not the destiny that God has for his people. I mean, here Israel is no longer oppressed by Midian, But now they're perhaps in even more trouble than they were to begin with. Now they're enslaved to a new form of idol worship than they were before. Remember when Gideon was called by God, the first thing he had to do before he could go into battle was to tear down the idols in his village. And I would imagine that when God told him to tear down the idols, God's plan wasn't that Gideon would tear down the altars to Baal and Asherah just so that he could then come later and craft his own idol for worship. And of great concern at this point is the fact that this golden ephod is a really dangerous idol because Gideon doesn't even recognize it as one. Because this idol has been made custom to fit into all of his own religious sensibilities. And this is a, this is a total disaster. I mean, Israel, yes, is enjoying peace and prosperity, but Israel does not have true freedom. And this new form of slavery is probably worse than the first form because, one, they're blind to it. I mean, this idol is... Look, it's a golden ephod. What could be wrong with it? Our priests wear ephods when they minister before the Lord. Let's just bow down and worship this thing. And remember the great victory that God won for us back in the day. What a great guy Gideon is. And so this is a worse kind of slavery because, yes, the hand of the oppressors has been taken away from them. But if we remember, it was the hand of the oppressors that drove them to cry out to God, that drove them to repentance. And now in this place of plenty, with all their wealth and with all their comfort, what is going to cause them to turn away from this new custom favorite idol and turn back to God? A snare is an excellent description of 
the predicament because a snare slowly tightens more and more, choking the life, choking the fruitfulness out of this man who was meant to lead Israel back to God. Now, Gideon does end up living to a ripe old age. He has many wives, he has many children, and and for a season, I'm sure he feels as if things have really worked out for him. I'm sure Israel feels as if, man, things are going great. We've got this awesome golden ephod over here in this town that we can worship, and Gideon's a great leader, and look how fruitful his life is. He's got 70, 70 kids. The guy has 70 kids and lots of wives. What a lucky guy. I'm sure for a while it seems like this is all working out great. But in verse 33, we read, No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their new god. And they did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbabel, that is, Gideon, in spite of all the good things that he had done for him. Gideon would seem to skate through it all right. Then as soon as he dies, Israel's back into other forms of idol worship as well. But I would submit to you that Gideon did not escape through this unmarred. The next chapter, Judges chapter 9, one of Gideon's illegitimate children, so he had a bunch of wives, he had 70 sons with his wives, he he also had a, a concubine who had a child named Abimelech. And, and so Gideon's illegitimate child, Abimelech, in the next chapter, comes and murders Gideon's 70 other sons, ends up killing all but one of Gideon's other sons. And uh, in addition to killing Gideon's sons, this son of Gideon ends up becoming the first king in Israel. And so talk about a, a nation that is not loyal to the family of Gideon after all that he'd done for them. I, I mean, this is a tragedy. Uh, <laughs> the son, the illegitimate son, who murders all of the legitimate sons and then is made king by Israel, uh, I mean, what would Gideon have done differently? If he knew that the moment he was gone, his entire legacy would evaporate in inner family violence and bloodshed. Gideon might have thought for a moment that uh, he had gotten away with it all and that things were going great. But I guarantee you, if he had any awareness beyond the grave of what was going on in the world, if, if he was witness to any of that, as the book of Hebrews alludes to, I can only imagine his heart must have been broken. I mean, what a tragedy. 70 sons killed. You know, this idol uh, of worshiping what God has done and this infatuation of Gideon's role as hero in the story, it, it all became a snare that brought death to most of Gideon's family. And at this point, we would do well to be reminded that God's primary concern throughout much of the scriptures, and certainly here in the book of Judges, his primary concern is delivering his people from idols. And it's the idols of our own making that are particularly dangerous to us. And so what kinds of past victories, what kinds of past triumphs have we maybe lingered in worship and adoration of? Or where have we maybe inflated our own roles to see ourselves as heroic or as the the catalyst for the good things happening in our story? 
Where have we maybe allowed ourselves to be more enamored with our own righteousness or our own sacrifices or our own commitment levels or our own qualifications? Uh, Where have we felt entitled to the spoils of war? Because darn it, we've earned it. We've paid our dues and it's time for us to, to, you know, reap a good harvest of the difficult things that we've done. And I would imagine for each of us, that's a, a personal question that we maybe need to take some time waiting through with the Holy Spirit. But I, in the midst of that waiting, I would encourage you, watch out. Don't let your head be put through that snare. It meant death for Gideon's family, and it will mean death for you and yours as well. It meant death for our spiritual ancestors, and it still means death today. And especially in the moments when we are able to enjoy the blessings of comfort and prosperity, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us be alert if there are any snares around our necks slowly tightening so that we can escape from those before they, uh, before they cut us off. So I pray that this week uh, the Lord would bless you, that he would uh, care for you, that he would fill your life with peace, that he would bring prosperity to your world. Uh, but I pray too that his Holy Spirit would help you to navigate those things wisely, that they wouldn't become a snare for you, that there would be no custom-made idols in our lives or in our homes. Uh, there would be nothing that we would be bowing to or looking to Uh, rather than the Lord our God. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are the giver of good gifts, that you are the source of everything good. We just acknowledge right now that, that nothing that we have is because of the strength of our own hand or the wisdom of our own mind or uh, the dutifulness of our own commitments, but you have been gracious and you have been good and you have been faithful to fill our lives with good things. We thank you for those things and we hold them with open hands Uh, trusting you to care for us every step of the way. You're the good shepherd. We put our hope in you, and we ask you to show us the paths to walk in and those around us who need uh, just the light of your love to be shared with them uh, through our own lives. We thank you, we praise you, and we just look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.